This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports, and from business to history, and everything in between, including your stories. Send them to OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. They're some of our favorites. And today we have one of our regular features from Stephen Rosiniak. This was his first story ever published in Chicken Soup for the Father and Son Soul, which can be bought on Amazon.com. Stephen usually reads his entries for us, but today his son Michael will be performing this piece. He's well into his teenage years, still kisses me goodnight, and I'm sure going to miss it when he stops. In truth, he already stopped once a few years ago when he announced that he was a little too old for this, but changed his mind after we had a father and son talk. I've always known the spoken word can deliver a powerful message, but as I learned that night, sometimes the message needn't be voiced at all. And sometimes, the greatest lessons learned are taught to us, unknowingly, by our children. One of the things we talked about that night was an old friend of mine. We were going camping for the weekend, and when I stopped to pick him up, my friend and his father were working together on a classic car restoration. Grabbing his gear and before leaving, he said, See you on Sunday, Pop. And without hesitation, gave his father a kiss. So many years have gone by since then, and yet the memory of that moment remains a lasting impression of the love that my friend had for his father and demonstrated through the power of a son's kiss. My son and I talked about my father, too. I wish I could kiss Dad once more, but he passed away some years ago. We didn't kiss as grown men until well into my own adulthood. When I began to kiss him again, it was on special occasions, holidays, family gatherings, times where I could do so with neither of us feeling embarrassed or uncomfortable. It was such a wonderful feeling to express my love for him in such a way, and I knew he felt so too. Not since my childhood had kissing served as a routine declaration of affection between us, but once resumed, we had both come to expect it. On the night he died, and again one last time before he was laid to rest, I tenderly kissed him and whispered, I love you. This is what I had told my son, not with the purpose to embarrass him into continuing our nightly ritual, but instead to share with him a small piece of love that I had for my father and how much he'd meant to me. He listened, and when I was through, he kissed me. We haven't missed a night since. There have been times when I wondered if our nightly ritual was about to reach its untimely demise, the consequence of some youthful offense committed by my firstborn. With my parental dissatisfaction duly expressed, the ensuing verbal sparring does sometimes commence. We have been angry with each other, but this is how it is sometimes between parents and their children. Despite any ill feelings that may remain between us, and as the day draws to a close, we can never allow such emotions to interfere with the completion of our nightly kiss. When he is ready for bed, he finds me, and when I see him, any feelings of anger experienced earlier in the day quietly disappear. He stands before me, not quite a man, but still, and for the moment, my little boy. His vulnerability is exposed as he unknowingly relinquishes his assaults of late on his quest to charge, full speed, towards the inevitable destination known as manhood. 
He seeks my reassurance that we are okay and that he is still loved. A comforting hug, the nightly kiss, and the reaffirmation that whatever transgressions may have taken place previously, parental love remains unconditional, eternal. As he heads off the bed, I bask in the glow of fatherly love and the reassurance that he still needs me. Once again, our private world has been made right, if but only for one more night. I hope my son never feels uncomfortable kissing me, but if he ever does, I'll understand. Perhaps one day he'll be blessed with children of his own, and then he too will come to know the wonder and glory of fatherhood and the power of his child's kiss. You've been listening to Michael Rasiniak, and that is Stephen Rasiniak's son. And this was a piece that Stephen wrote for Chicken Soup for the Father and Son Soul. And we spend a lot of time on this show with that most important piece of social capital in America called the family, and the importance of fathers in son and daughter's lives, and the importance of mothers in sons and daughter's lives, too. And getting Michael to read the story was just a great turn because he's internalizing these words, and one day, hopefully, he'll be living them himself and passing this great tradition of a kiss between a father and son to teach what masculinity can look and feel like as opposed to merely what it sounds like. And that is the power of such a thing. If you remember, we did Frank Abagnale's story, and that's the character from Catch Me If You Can. And go to OurAmericanNetwork.org and take a listen to that because it starts with Frank talking about his father and his father's kiss. And that every night, no matter what happened, his father would come in and kiss not only him, but his big Marine Corps brother who was a star football player. And he loved it. And he knew his dad had come in even when he was asleep because the pillow had been touched or a blanket had been turned. And so dad's out there. Don't be afraid to kiss your kid and hug your kid. And you don't have to always say anything. Just a kiss and a hug, especially after a fight. It can go a long way. Chicken soup for the father and son's soul. Go to Amazon.com and get it. And that's Stephen Rosiniak's story. His son Michael's story. And so many father and son stories around this great country. And now it's time for our Why Minutes. And up next, we have Lindsay Marie. This next Why Minutes is about a thing called sports betting. Take it away, Lindsay. When you think of sports betting, what state do you think of? I'm no psychic, but I'm guessing you are thinking of Nevada. But why is that? It has a lot to do with something called the Bradley Act. The Bradley Act was passed by Congress in the 90s. Politicians said it was to protect us from the spread of gambling, but what it actually did was protect Nevada from competition. It restricted sports betting in every state, except, you guessed it, Nevada. For decades, if you wanted to bet on the games legally, you had to go all the way to Nevada. That was, until New Jersey finally had enough. They challenged the law and hit the jackpot. The law was declared unconstitutional, putting an end to Nevada's decades-old monopoly on sports betting. When government meddles in the marketplace, they often say it's to protect us. But what really ends up happening is they change the rules, they stack the odds. Ultimately, they pick winners and losers. And we, the consumers, are always the losers. The Why Minutes. Because why matters.
And we continue with Our American Stories, and now we take an irreverent look at a controversial confection that has stirred much debate over the years. Candy corn. Here's Our American Stories staff with a story. Hello, this is Alex Cortez. And and before we do this, I just want to say that I think candy corn is pretty pitiful. All right, it's not like I have some beef with candy corn, but in the world of candy, why would someone choose it over a Reese's, Kit Kat, Butterfinger, Crunch, Snickers, Gummy Worms, Peeps, Junior Mints, Jolly Ranchers, Peppermint Patties, a Baby Ruthie, Peanut Butter M&M's, Rollos, Charleston Chews, and a million other members of this beautiful marketplace of candy that we call America. I gotta say, though, candy corn is a pretty unique candy, and I do like having one single piece during Halloween. Am I a hypocrite? Perhaps. But I don't think that's gonna keep candy corn in business. Apparently, other citizens feel differently about this stuff. And finally, here's Jesse. According to a recent survey of over 30,000 Americans, candy corn was listed as the worst candy on the planet somewhere between circus peanuts and Necco wafers. Always perceived as the unwanted bastard child of the candy world, candy corn is apparently here to stay. But where did it come from, and why is it here? Somebody is eating it, but nobody seems to want to admit it. We want to know why. And it's not just for Halloween anymore. According to the National Confectioners Association, they sell more than 35 million pounds of the stuff every year. That's roughly 9 billion pieces of candy corn. Well more than enough for every person on the planet. Sometime around 1880, when wax was a popular ingredient in children's candy... A man named George Renninger, an employee at the Wonderly Candy Company of Philadelphia, came up with the idea. Oh, hello. Mixing sugar, corn syrup, artificial coloring, binding agents, marshmallows, icing, and caranuba wax, Renninger poured the concoction into corn-shaped molds. Caranuba wax gives candy corn that waxy texture and shine. It's also the main ingredient in surfboard wax. Fast forward 18 years, and in 1898, the Golitz Candy Company, which later became Jelly Belly, acquired the recipe and started marketing it as novelty candy chicken feed for children. You see, before World War I, Americans didn't really eat a lot of corn because it hadn't been introduced into our diet until it was used to feed soldiers. See, sweet corn is picked when the plant is immature and very tender. But field corn is left to grow rough and large. It's still used to feed pigs, chickens, and cows. And it's considered yellow gold in the Midwest. There are over 80 million acres of it growing in the Great Corn Belt from northwestern Nebraska to eastern Ohio and right on next door into Pennsylvania, where candy corn was born. The United States is by far the world's largest producer and exporter of corn. It's been the leading crop in Iowa for more than 150 years. Iowa produces more corn than the entire country of Mexico. On average, Iowa grows 183 bushels of corn per acre. Corn is an ingredient in more than 4,000 everyday grocery items. 
A single bushel can sweeten about 400 cans of soda. It's also used in cake, cookies, dessert mixes, baby food, cereals, chewing gum, bread, chips, chocolate, soups, hot dogs, ice cream, jams, marshmallows, pet food, donuts, batteries, blankets, cardboard, chalk, cleaners, detergents, crayons, cosmetics, plates, cups, ink, insecticides, matches, paper, plastic, shampoo, and shoe polish, fuel. It's no wonder, then, that we have a candy corn, a tribute to the humble colonel that has so much to offer. There's even a National Candy Corn Day on October 30th. You can find candy corn cocktail recipes. How about some candy corn pajamas or underwear? There's even a candy corn spring-loaded launcher that can send pieces of candy corn across the street. Joining us now to talk about candy corn is our American Story staff writers Robert Davis III and Matthew Montgomery. Robert, what do you got for us? Candy corn. Well, I'm not a big sweets guy to begin with, so if I'm going to have a sugary treat, it's got to be worth it. It's not that candy corn is bad, per se. It's just next to it, a eclair or cannoli, some moose tracks ice cream. Ooh, creme brulee. Well, it just doesn't stack up. I'd say that's an apt analysis. Uh, let's turn now to Matthew Montgomery. Matthew, what are your thoughts on candy corn? So I am by far the youngest person on the staff here. Um, Fresh out of college, and I can remember vividly when I used to trick-or-treat because it was less than 10 years ago that I did it. And candy corn was the type of thing that you loathed to get, and it would end up on the bottom of your bag every single year, and you just wouldn't eat it. Until Christmas, that is, at least for me. And the reason why that was was I had this clear, uh, I guess it was, a filing cabinet in my room like it had been bought from Ikea by my parents when I was maybe nine and I used it to store a whole bunch of random trash I had in my room including my Halloween candy because I didn't like to keep my bag in the corner of the room uh, because it felt like it wasn't stowed away and so I would dump the candy in the bottom drawer of this thing and I would eat it over a period of time like I wasn't a kid who would just go ham on candy and finish it all the day after Halloween. I wasn't like that. I I like to sparse it out and have stuff to come home to from middle school and, you know, just just chew on. And I would never go for the candy corn. And it was always just too sweet, too waxy for me. But the thing was, I would always inevitably end up eating the candy corn. And I would always end up eating it around Christmas time because that's the time when the candy would start to run out, you know. Or maybe, like, by Thanksgiving. And even then, I don't get why people think that candy corn is a Thanksgiving treat, because it, it's not. It's not a treat in general. But I, I just attach it quintessentially to Halloween and about a month thereafter, excluding Thanksgiving. Um, but I would always just have loads and loads and loads of candy, uh, of candy corn and also these malt balls that I didn't like. I think my sister had thrown up by eating one before and that sort of ruined it for me for that but unfortunately i never had any negative experience connected with candy corn not to eat it other than out of necessity like you you wanted sugar when you were young and you would do anything to get it and i think i even like went into the kitchen and got butter at one point and dipped it in my mom's uh, sugar vat and ate that so you know candy corn was a bit of a necessity it was like, um, I don't know what the soldiers eat on the battlefield. I forgot the exact name for it. But it was like that for a 12-year-old. And 
if I ever have kids, I'm going to ban them from eating candy corn. It is borderline child abuse. I'd rather my kid just down sugar in the kitchen than eat candy corn. It is something I will never want to put my kids through. And they should also ban it in schools. It, it, it is a weapon of mass destruction against the young minds in America, young impressionable minds. And for some godforsaken reason, some of these kids, um, they end up liking it. And I don't get why they do. It, it's just weird. Candy corn is atrociously terrible. Terrible. <laughs> Matthew Montgomery, ladies and gentlemen, I'd also like to thank Robert Davis III for his commentary as well. Well, you heard it here first, ladies and gentlemen. While we couldn't quite find anyone in the studio who would admit to actually eating candy corn, we all know someone out there is eating it. At least 35 million pounds every year. Let's hope somebody's eating it. What else could they be doing with it? Let us know what you think about candy corn. Record your thoughts and commentary on a smartphone or a computer and send it to us. You can find our email address at OurAmericanStories.com. Uh, for Our American Stories, I'm Jesse Edwards. Well, thanks to the whole team. We've learned so much. Actually, maybe a little too much about some of you. <laughs> and a confession here. Here's the reason, folks, and I really get into the weeds on how we make this show. But this story started because I came in one morning in our story session, and I had gone out with my little girl, and we were at the candy aisle, and I said, I grabbed candy corn. And my daughter looked at me like I'd sprung a second head. She goes, you're eating candy corn? I said, I like candy corn. She said, you're crazy. And so I came in and said, we should do a story on the history of candy corn. Why not? And thanks, Jesse. Thanks, the whole team. Uh, we'd love to hear your thoughts on all kinds of irreverent things. We don't do opinions here on this show about anything that separates people. But I do think that periodically we can hear the opinions of the staff on something like candy corn. Again, send your opinions, your stories about candy or anything else. But anyone doing trick-or-treating or remember it knows that that candy corn person who didn't give you the Snickers bar or didn't give you the Milky Way was just giving you filler and feed. And so when you're out there filling up kids' pails, give them a little candy corn, but hit up, hit up a Snickers bar or something else of substance, too. A little bit of levity here. Our American stories. The story of candy corn, a true American concoction. Here on Our American Stories. continue here on Our American Stories. And next, we bring you the story of Martin Licious and his company, Tempest Tours, an unconventional Texas-based tour company. Storm chasers, those wild individuals who ride around in search of the weather most people try to avoid. What kind of person does it take to do this? Well, let's find out with Martin Licious. I first became interested in... Uh severe weather growing up in North Texas where we have big storms on a regular basis when I was a kid probably about four or five years old um, we would have storms that come through that uh, the lightning would hit so close to our house that our whole house would shake also right down the street from our house was a TV station called WBAP TV Harold Taft was the meteorologist on staff and uh, Harold is actually credited 
with uh, creating the American weathercast, TV weathercast. Before him, they would simply read the text. They'd re read the, uh, the forecast off a piece of paper, and then he, uh, being a, a full-blown meteorologist, decided to use maps to describe to the viewers what was happening. Uh, believe me, we're going to. Um, the computer will paint this on. Kind of fun to watch it, so let's just do that for a second. See? All the color comes on, all the symbols. All right. Still getting a little light uh, freezing drizzle up here in uh, Gage, Oklahoma. And so I'd watch him a lot, and uh, they had this old-fashioned black and white radar. And he'd show that quite a bit as well. And uh, I think that was kind of when I really became interested in weather. And then when I was about 12 years old, um, I asked my mom if I could build a weather station on top of the uh, of our house. She said, sure, just be careful. And I uh, started plotting storms as they came through uh, on a map. And I entered a science fair and uh, won the competition. I built a 3D model of a supercell thunderstorm. And the winner is... Eventually I got a car and uh, decided that I'd go out and film storms and then about the same time that I did that uh, I heard that there was there were these guys called storm chasers and I met some of them and then from there that point on I, I did it quite a bit. Martin eventually founded Tempest Tours, a company that lets you book storm chasing expeditions like cruises. That came about in we started it in 2000. I'd say around 1999, I decided I was going to do it um, because I didn't think that, I didn't say to myself, let's start a storm chasing tour company. I just uh, was receiving a lot of requests from regular normal people uh, to go storm chasing with me and they were usually not able to go because of work. So I thought, what if we created tours and then we put out the schedule year in advance, people could get off work and actually go. And that's when uh, Timbus Tours was born uh, back around 2000. You know, storm chasing is kind of like fishing. Um, you know, there's a good time of year to go fishing, right? Um, but you go out and you go out several days fishing and some days are good and some days are not good. So it's a lot like that um, on a tour. You know, they're typically run four to 11 days in length. And of course, the longer the tour, the greater chance of seeing good storms, just like if you went on an 11-day fishing trip versus a four-day fishing trip. Um, basically, they get up in the morning. We tell the guests when to meet us. Uh, we stay at motels, of course, and we'll meet in um, the lobby or, or somewhere, and we'll do a little weather briefing and uh, tell them what we, we show the maps and so forth, and we tell them why we're going there, what we can expect that day. Then we all load up, head to that target, uh, wait for storms to develop, and then uh, we, we track the one that we feel has the greatest potential of producing a tornado or just being a really good supercell. And you know, sometimes you'll have three or four storms form in your target area, and you have to be very careful to put, pick this the right one. And so we kind of sometimes hold back a little bit and wait until the best one, what we think will be the best one to form. And we've been very successful at that. And then we track it and uh, if it's not moving too fast, we're able to stop several times and take pictures of it, including tornadoes and lightning and so forth. 
which you can see uh, at our website. You know, people, a common question that people ask is how close do we get? And I say close enough to take great pictures, but far enough to be safe. So the best way to see how close we get is to go to our website or go to our Facebook page and just see the pictures that we've taken and some of our guests have taken and you can get a good idea of how close we get. Now while they're in the van, along the way there are uh, there's a screen in the van and so they're watching what the tour director is doing and they're seeing, you know, the models develop. That's Kim George, Tempest Tours customer relations manager. So he will be explaining those along the way, saying this is what the storm is doing, this is where we need to be. And so he will constantly keep them updated as they are going towards the target. And so they will wait, but when they actually get to visually see the storm, you know, coming up in the foreground, everybody gets very excited. So we get um, closer to the storm, we track it. Sometimes you have to wait a little while, but most of the time you're going straight towards the storm. Most storms develop in the afternoon. And um, once you are on the storm, then uh, depending on how the storm is moving, you position and you reposition and you reposition again because storms don't stand still most of the time. <laughs> when we're chasing a storm, we follow it till it's the end or till you lose the light. And sometimes that'll happen. And if you can't chase it when it's dark. Sometimes they do. It depends on the storm. If it's developing tornadoes, sometimes we have, we did this past year, uh, chase a storm even after dark and they actually saw some nighttime tornadoes, which was um, very good for the group. They thought that was amazing. And the only reason you can see them is because of the lightning. When it strikes, you can actually see the tornadoes below the storm. So that's basically a typical day. And then we uh, get lodging nearby and they stay somewhere for the night. And then they also are developing a plan to, you know, begin that all over again the next day. We are not a luxury tour company. <laughs> uh, we have to tell them that, honestly, you know, when you're out chasing, and anybody who does that would know, uh, you'll be in Podunkies, America somewhere. And there's not a lot of options when it comes to places to stay. And sometimes there's not a lot of options for places to eat. And so you do the best you can with the environment that you're in. And we are very good about finding places that you can stay. But every once in a while, you know, at Motel 6, it may be the only place that you can stay for the night. So you do. Um, because the important thing is not the luxury of what we do, it's the chasing itself. And, and our guests do realize that, that you can't always be in, you know, a really swanky hotel. But that's not why you go chase with us. You just need a bed, you need a place to get some rest, and then you can start the next day fresh. On a down day, uh, we will... Uh head towards the next day's target so a down day may be followed by a severe weather potential day so we'll head towards that target and on the way stop at places that are interesting things that you know i've seen since i've been with the company that i never knew existed there is a place in kansas that's called uh, monument rock and it's just this sandstone formation in the middle of nowhere and you go on it and it's just crazy uh, it could be the Badlands in South Dakota, Mount Rushmore, Devil's Tower, Palo Duro Canyon in the Texas Panhandle, 
or you might stop at a weather service office and take a tour. So we're always doing something interesting uh, every single day. We know this is our guest uh, vacation time. They want to see something interesting. We try to make it special when we're not on a storm. I mean, they're all coming for the storms. I mean, they don't really care about the other ones if they have a storm to follow. <laughs> so, but yeah, we try to make the times that we're not, you know, in a hard chase for the storm, we try to make those um, times as memorable as we can. And you are listening to Martin Licious and Kim George. And Martin is the founder of Tempest Tours. And Kim works there in the customer relations department. And if you want to see a storm, well, then Tempest Tours is the place to go. And TempestTours.com is the website address, TempestTours.com. And go on there and take a look at the gallery section and see what customers have seen. And so if you want to get up and close to a tornado, and I've always wanted to see one, we broadcast south of Memphis here in Oxford, Mississippi. Been here about a dozen years, probably about 15 uh, tornado warnings and storm shelter trips. But I'm always popping my head out to see one, and it just doesn't happen. One came within about uh, five miles of our town, cut across Highway 6, and then ultimately made its way up to Birmingham and up to Tuscaloosa, one of the big killers of all time, one of the worst tornadoes of all time in American history. So again, Martin Licious with Tempest Tours, his story, and so many Americans who are just fascinated by, well, just turbulence and tough weather. Martin's story here on Our American Story. We continue here with our American stories, and our next story comes from Mark Henderson, the owner of Mississippi's first craft brewery, Lazy Magnolia. Out of all the states in the Union, Mississippi ranks dead last in the number of craft breweries. But before Mark and his wife, Leslie, there were none. Here's Mark with the story of how he helped bring good beer to Mississippi. And by the way, you're going to hear sounds of a brewery in the back. Because, well, we're doing a story about a brewery. I am the head peon at Lazy Magnolia Brewing Company. I'm married to the boss and brewmaster, uh, my wife, Leslie Henderson. So my wife and I are both engineers, and she was looking to buy a gift for me one Christmas. Uh, so this would have been year 2000. And uh, she, she bought a homebrew kit from a company actually in the Midwest called Midwest Supplies, and it was like the grown-up version of a homebrew kit, right? I mean, it was glass carboys and, you know, hygrometers and thermometers and, you know, all the fancy equipment. But not terribly specialized or expensive, but, you know, solid start. You know, a couple of weeks after Christmas, I opened everything up and laid it all out on the stove and cooked up a batch of beer and had a great time. But eight weeks later, during Mardi Gras, we were all standing around a table eating crawfish and uh, we popped some beer that was absolutely palatable. <laughs> I mean, that was, that's the best way to describe it, right? It, it, was, it, was, uh, it was okay, nothing to write home about, but it was decent enough. A couple weeks later, Liz and I, no kids, you know, there's really nothing going on in the winter, and we took all the equipment back out and uh, 
started brewing a batch of beer. I got about halfway through it, and uh, Leslie came through, and she goes, that's not right. You're not doing that right. That's wrong. You missed this step. You didn't do this. You didn't hold this for enough time. The temperature of that was of one degree Fahrenheit off. I mean, she just laid into me, and I uh, was like, yeah, okay. <laughs> and she's like, you're not taking this very seriously. I'm like, no, I'm not. I am drinking beer on a Saturday and cooking some up. And she looks like, hey, look, if we're going to make good beer, we need a wort chiller. And I was like, we? When, when did we show up exactly in this? I said, what What in the world is a wort chiller? She's like, look, here it is. And she showed me the picture in a magazine. So you need to go to Lowe's, get all the parts to make this. I will take over the brewing. I joke, but it's, it's largely true. That, that is, uh, that's the last batch of beer I ever brewed. And she came home one day from work and said, I want to brew beer for a living. And I said, are, are you nuts? And she goes, is that relevant? I mean, it, it tells you a lot about our relationship is that uh, you know, she's, she's kind of been the, the fire component, right, to get things done. Um, and I, I'm running around trying to figure out how to make her dreams come true. But she decided, I mean, that, I mean, she was a chemical engineer working at a high-performance polymer plant. She started off as employee number four, and the company built up to 50 people, and it wasn't as much fun at that point for her. And she said, I want to do this. And so we started the process in 2003. big question then was, uh, was it even legal? Because there were no breweries in the state of Mississippi. There were uh, a couple of brew pubs had opened up along the way. The law had changed for brew pubs to allow those in 1999, but there had never been a production brewery. And everybody knew that it was illegal. And it took a lot of time and a lot of energy and a lot of people telling me no, and a lot of people were reinforcing that it was illegal. To eventually make it all the way up to, to the head of the ABC in the state of Mississippi, Alcohol Beverage Control Board, right? This is a guy who runs a half of, it's a half a billion dollar business in the state of Mississippi, right? And I'm talking to this guy and I'm like, hey, I, I'm actually trying to brew beer in the state of Mississippi. And he goes, you know, that's illegal, right? I'm like, I've been told, but can you just show me where it says that in the law? And he goes, yeah, yeah take it, give me 30 minutes, I'll call you back. And three hours later, he calls me back and says, I can't find it, but I know it's in there. And I was like, wait a minute, you're, you're the head of the ABC. I mean, you should be able to quote me scripture and verse, right? I mean, paragraph and line on uh, why this is illegal in the state of Mississippi. And he goes, yeah, but here's the problem. I don't actually regulate beer. I was like, excuse me? He goes, yeah, I regulate alcoholic beverages, which constitutes wine and liquor in the state of Mississippi. Mississippi does not define beer as an alcoholic beverage. I don't regulate that. You need to talk to Ronnie Lynch, the Mississippi State Tax Commission. And I was like, okay. So I called up Ronnie Lynch, the Mississippi State Tax Commission. I said, Ronnie, I'd like to brew beer. And he goes, okay. I'm like, what, what, I'm sorry, what did you say? He said, yes, I, you can do that. And I'm like, Ronnie, are you sure? He goes, yes, I am positive. You gotta fill out a bunch of paperwork, you gotta get a background check, you gotta do this, right? You gotta get a bond, and you gotta show me your federal brewer's permit. Well, that seems all pretty reasonable. I said, Ronnie, how come there are no breweries in the state of Mississippi? And he goes, I don't know. You're the first person to ever ask. We had to start off selling beer directly to distributors. We didn't have any access to retail sales. Never in a million years would you set up a system that that was the right way to do it. I mean, you always want brands to prove out that they are valid and good brands. Right, that they have consumer pull, right, that they have quality, that they have the flavor profiles or the 
right? Whatever it is, the, the marketing components, what the consumer wants. And then you go, oh, well, once we figured all that out, then you would push into distribution. That was not an option for us. We had to be in distribution on day one. And I start to realize that I have to be engaged politically in order to change some things. Prior to 2012, when we got the law changed for tap rooms, it was illegal for us to actually even give away beer. The law uh, that we negotiated through allowed us to give away up to six, six ounce samples. And you couldn't sell any beer on site, you couldn't sell any beer to go, you couldn't, all you could do is you could charge money for a tour and as part of that tour, let people have up to six, six ounce samples. This is as soon as we did that, five breweries, new breweries opened up in the state of Mississippi because now they had a way to actually communicate directly with consumers, right? They had a way to, to create brands and create awareness and find out, you know, what worked and what didn't work. One of the things I learned along the way is that you can't trust Southerners to tell you the truth when you've given them something free. Southerners are inherently polite, and if you give them something, right, the, the, the first thing they'll say is like, oh, this is so nice, right? They may turn around and spit it out right behind you, but to your face, they'll say that, oh, yes, I loved it, it was nice. What I've learned is, is that it's not until you actually uh, bring money into that equation do you get an honest answer out of a Southerner. At the same time, a consumer organization called Raise Your Pints was working on changing the alcohol limit. They wanted access to more beers. The change that I was working on very specifically was to say, I should be allowed to make anything of, right? If it's legal for sale in California, I should be able to make it here. So, you know, I was pressing on the manufacturing side and Razor Pints was there pushing on the consumer side. And that became kind of the two voices that then could go together to the legislature and get some change. Um, and it took many, many years. So uh, in 2012, we got the manufacturing limit removed. We've got the consumption, what's legal for sale in Mississippi, raised from 5% by weight to 8% by weight. There are two states in the union that use uh, alcohol by weight as their critical measure, uh, Utah and Mississippi. And the only reason that I can possibly fathom for this is that both would prefer not to have any alcohol in the state, and by using ABW, you get to use a lower number. It meant that we had to learn how to pack a whole lot of flavor in not much alcohol. And it's like anything else, right? I mean, there's, a, there's an ancient old movie, I'm hesitant to even bring it up, but it was called Conan the Barbarian with Arnold Schwarzenegger, right? And, and you have this kid, right, who, who faces all kinds of adversity, right, and is, you know, put on a wheel and pushes the wheel, right? That adversity tends to make you stronger. And so you have to learn things, you have to learn to work around it, right? And so we learned how to pack a lot of flavor into a little bit of alcohol. It's not a skill that a lot of people had to learn. So I, I tell people that one of the great things about our brewery is, is that we have a female brewmaster. You can go to a lot of breweries, right? And, the, and they're male-dominated, right? There's a bunch of guys running around with really big, awesome, amazing beards, right? And they're pounding on their chest, and they're going, ah, I make the best and the biggest and the meanest. And you're like, yeah, but does it taste the good? I mean, does, is, it, is it the best flavor? Having a little bit of estrogen running around in a brewery helps keep the testosterone in check. And it's, and it's about balance. And, and having that diversity of opinion when it comes to flavors. And engineers question everything. And people who know engineers know that engineers do not care what the rules are, but they want to know what all the rules are. And if you got, if you know what the rules are, you can figure out a way. I mean, you, you go, hey, look, I got speed of light, I got you know charge an electron, I got 
gravity. I still want to build a bridge. How do you do that? And, you know, I was the guy who was willing to listen to a hundred people say, you know, that's illegal, right? And get told no time after time after time. And as a child, I had worked in, my mother worked in retail. And I developed an appreciation very early on. And every time someone says no, that puts you one step closer to the yes that you're looking for, right? It's, it's, it's not, no is not no. No is just not now. That's not what I'm looking for. That's, right, there's always some hurdle. All you got to do is figure out what that thing is and you can get over it. And we've been listening to Mark Henderson, and he's one half of a remarkable couple who started the first craft brewery in the state of Mississippi. And the brewmaster, the head of this organization, is clearly his bride. And he goes out there and just pushes, gets it out there. He's the cheerleader, and she's the force. And she's the one, well, she's the brewmaster. They had no kids. They had nothing going on. So they decided, what the heck, let's make a beer. And when they were told no, they just kept pressing. And no meant maybe to him. And maybe turns into yeses. And I love that he talked about the fact that these rules actually force them to make a better beer. And that adversity, well, we can overcome adversity. He had to learn how to pack a lot of flavor, he and his bride, into a little bit of alcohol. And thanks, Monty Montgomery, for the story. Our Hillsdale grad doing great work here already. The Lazy Magnolia Brewing Company, their story here on Our American Stories. Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports, and from business to history, and everything in between, including your stories. Send them to OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. They're some of our favorites. And today, we have the story of Sam Kendricks. He's an Olympian and world champion pole vaulter, and he just so happens to be from right here in our small part of the world, Oxford, Mississippi. Faith brings us his story. Sam Kendricks is an Olympic medalist and world champion pole vaulter. Today, he's telling the story of how he went from a small town boy to a professional athlete. Sam and his twin brother Tom were born in California. Around the age of four or five, his dad moved them to Oxford, Mississippi, where his dad and now coach Scott Kendricks became a police officer. That's kind of that's where the whole story started when I started living on Highway 7 in the big white house um, with the horses behind. And I started the, this little adventure called the, the Kendricks Family in Oxford. Some, somehow my dad seemed to know everybody in Oxford and even though he'd only been here um, three or four years, he just kind of got plugged in everybody out in the country and whatnot. And so I grew up just following him around and uh, eventually became teacher and a coach at the middle school and then high school and I never really had to go far out of Oxford to find what I needed and uh, being in being in a hometown kind of makes you 
either make some real stark choices early because you don't get you don't get to start over at all. Um, the people the people here know me from ten years ago, and I feel they, I'm the same person that I was. If if I screwed up five years back, everybody's going to know about it, and I'm not going to be able to leave that unless I go somewhere else. So you really got to think about what kind of person you want to be early. And um, I decided I was going to be a I was going to be an army officer. I was going to be a part of a team. I was going to be an athlete. I didn't actually have any aptitude for what I was doing until after I had gone into college. And people, most people don't know that. They thought I had a lot of talent in high school, but I started out being a pole vaulter because I couldn't actually make my dad's track team. It was too competitive. Um, and, you know, an eighth grade boy that had a little bit of exercise-induced asthma um, when he was 13, even though he exercised every day riding horses and swimming in the summer, um, just wasn't wasn't the most potential worthy when I started. And that's um, kind of my biggest advantage is that I didn't really have any talent. So I was a blank sheet. I didn't have any speed. I didn't have the hops. Couldn't dunk a basketball to save my life. Couldn't throw a spiral. It, you know, don't get me wrong. I, in elementary school, me and my brother were the biggest, strongest kids, and we dominated everything. But once, once, once it actually got important and it was high school, and I just wasn't the athlete. But something cool about an event that my father could help me with, which is the pole vault, is that he really had a love for track and field, and he didn't have the coach in high school. So he kind of wanted to be that for me, pole vaulting, because not many guys would do it in Mississippi because it didn't look like something that guys could learn quick between football season and track season. And it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's an endeavor, it's a discipline that is, favors the athletes that can do it for the long haul. A decade it takes to make an elite pole vaulter. And you got to learn about your, a lot about yourself along the way because no matter how much you try, how hard the try you give this event, if you don't have the mentality or the focus to kind of back it up, it doesn't, doesn't really matter. The physics is going to beat you every time. Um, there's, there's, I can't pole vault harder to jump higher. And it, it, it doesn't matter how much want to you have. There's a lot of things you have to have in place to be a good jumper. So in high school, I won my first medal. You know, the coolest medal I ever thought I was going to win was when I was 13, and I won the bronze medal at the state track and field meet in Jackson, Mississippi, well, in Pearl, Mississippi. That was when Oxford was 4A, and that was the most competitive division. I don't care. We had the most schools. We had the best athletes, more D1 people. I don't, I don't know the statistics. I'm making up stuff at this point. But, you know, bronze. Bronze was my, uh, bronze was my lucky color for about 10 years there. <laughs> I got two bronze medals my ninth and 10th grade year. Um, I jumped 12, 6, and then 13 feet 1 inches at the state meet. And those were honestly the most hard-fought medals I've ever had because that was the time where, you know, I was the smallest guy on the track. I mean, back then I did. I thought I, I, I hated when people, I absolutely, I had to sew my tights up on the inside because they wouldn't fit my legs. They fit like shorts. The whole track team switched to tights, like half tights, like you see uh, sprinters wearing in the Olympics, and they didn't have a size small enough for me and my skinny legs. So my, my dad, he got out his sewing needle from his, uh, from his uh, OCS kit, and he started sewing up the inside of my tights to take up the slack so I could have some tights and be on the squad. And I was like, oh, okay. All right, I got me a real coach now. <laughs> nobody's, nobody's really going to go to bat for you like your father will, though, so that's, that's a huge advantage. And um, 
made it. I jumped a personal best. I could jump 12 feet one week and then get six inches better by the next week. You know, the sky's the limit. But um, 12 feet six inches seemed like a real high bar back in 2008. But when Sam wasn't pole vaulting, he was often getting hurt. You know, they used to call me Stitch in high school. You know, you might have caught on to me telling you about my little shenanigans as a country boy when I was a kid. They used to call me Stitch because it seemed like every other week I'd show up in the emergency room needing stitches. Yeah, I was always getting something sewn up on me. And eventually it just got to the point where my dad would sew it up for me. <laughs> and we'd, we'd keep on going with whatever I was doing. I'd fall off a horse. Uh, dang it, that's just it's just bleeding a little too much here. Come here, Sam. Let me stitch it up for you. Never went anywhere to get my stitches taken out. My dad would cut them out for me. So that, well, let's, let's count up on one hand all the things my pops does for me. He's my coach. He's, uh, he's my advisor. He's my, uh, my surgeon. He's my bodyguard when we go some places. So, you know, I got I a lot rolled into one. I'm really getting my money's worth a lot of the time. And you're listening to Sam Kendricks, and he is getting his money's worth with his dad. And a great father-son story, a great sports story. And by the way... For us here in Oxford, Mississippi, and that's where we broadcast from, about an hour south of the great city of Memphis, we're hearing and listening to one of our local heroes when we continue more of Sam Kendrick's story, a great local story, here on Our American Stories. return to Our American Stories, and we've been listening to the story of Sam Kendricks and his dad, too. A small-town boy that is now a world champion athlete and Olympic medalist in pole vaulting. We left off with Sam talking about how he earned the nickname Stitch from how often he got hurt. In high school, um, when I was 17, before my senior season, I actually had a really dramatic injury during the summer. I, I was at a function with ROTC. And just doing a drill in the woods that night, I was running through the woods. We were running probably with, you know, we had Kevlar, ACH on, an assault pack, 50 pounds of gear, more or less, with goggles on our legs and a blank mags. It was a training exercise for, for young cadets. But I ran into an obstacle during that exercise. And at that point, doing nothing related to track and field whatsoever, was really boogered up. I do one of the most dangerous things you can do in the world, sports-wise, pole vaulting. And not even pole vaulting, I really boogered myself up. I knocked out all four of my front teeth. I broke every bone from my eyelids to my, my chin. I split my shin open to the bone. I broke my knee and uh, dislocated my hip. Just from the force of my own running, all this track training made me fast enough to really booger myself up. And I woke up looking down at this thing this concrete barrier in front of me and I said those are my teeth and um I remember very distinctly things slowed down a whole lot right there and I looked down and I said something's going wrong with my mouth and I reached up and I, I with my right hand I pull a tooth out of my mouth and I put it in my left hand it's okay I'm gonna need that and then I like little chiclets on the ground I start picking up my teeth and putting them in my hand like this all four of them and 
I said, wait a second, I need to go somewhere. And you're in shock at this moment, and you're walking. And I'm walking back to the, the talk where all the cadre were. The master sergeant is probably going to skin me alive with no teeth in my head. It says, Kenix, you're not allowed to get hurt. And I was like, oh, man. But I'm, uh, I, need to, I need to go to the hospital. But I, after about five steps, I realized I couldn't walk. And there's just a couple of my buddies from my squad were looking at me, and they dumbfounded. I said, I can't look that bad. And this is night outside. I said, hey, hey, help me walk. Help me walk. I can't. I don't think I can walk. And uh, I looked down, and my ACH pants are just, ICU pants are just split. And I'm walking, and they're, they're helping me. I still got my pe- teeth clutched in my hand. I said, I'm going to need these later. I think I'm going to need these later. And uh, eventually helped me limp over to the tuck, and Master Sergeant looked at me. He says, well, Kendrick's, uh, you're going to have to get in my truck real quick. And he takes duct tape, and he just starts taping up my leg. And I said, why are you taping up my leg, Master Sergeant? And he said, don't worry about it, Kendrick. He starts duct taping my leg, and he duct taped my leg from my ankle all the way up to my hip because apparently he could see something I couldn't see. And he he put me in his truck, and, you know, he'd like a champ, everybody else had gone back around with their exercise. I got in the truck. He must have drove 140 miles an hour down that highway from backwoods country, Mississippi, to whatever hospital we were going to, which is here in Oxford, actually. And I remember that call from my dad um, when he came from across town, and he, came, he walked in. He just had this smile on his face. And I know I must have looked a wreck. I looked down at myself, and I got blood all over me and just still got my teeth clenched, clenched in my hand. I wasn't going to give those to anybody. I thought I was going to need them. And he says, hey, son, uh, you look all right. Let's get you in here. After I got pumped full of morphine and stapled up and set, I was finally able to go to sleep, and I woke up the next day, and I stayed in that recliner for about 30 days before I had the mobility to actually get up and walk on crutches. And a lot of cool things happened that time. I took up a lot of hobbies. I played cards. I uh, I learned a lot about computers. Um, but I didn't have any teeth in my head. They weren't able to put those teeth back in my head. I didn't think they should have either. They were turning kind of brown. But I'm kind of glad I didn't have any teeth in my head. My knee was swelling up bigger and bigger. But by the grace of God, I got healed up. And a few staples in my knee taken out later and my shins. And my quadricep in my right leg retreating up my leg about four or five inches. Still makes my toe stick out a little bit on the right side. But you wouldn't know now that I had a catastrophic injury that kept me from pole vaulting for almost six months back in, back in those early days. But that being said, you really got to re- reallocate your efforts because I couldn't run for a long time after that. But boy, did I get strong doing pull-ups. I couldn't even do one. Couldn't even do one pull-up um, before... Uh, before that, but I could do 50 by the time I was done with that, and I got real strong. I just had to find a different way to get strong, to keep my, keep my brain together, keep those pieces together a little bit. Say, hey, I'm still actually going for, towards this goal as an athlete that I set myself on a long time ago. This is not going to take me all the way off, but just a little bit. If I'm just a little bit off, I can get back on the track. And I went on to uh, win a national championship the next year following um, after a long recovery and a bunch of surgeries later and finally getting some pearly whites put back in my head. And the beginning, it looks real bad. I mean, uh, oh, I need I need all my fingers and toes, and I can't and I can't even eat an apple. <laughs> but um, you, you, you get to that sort of thing, and you've got so much more mental toughness to accrue when you're, when you're hurting at the end of a workout. Oh, wait, I've, I've lost teeth before. This ain't nothing. Uh, you know, you, you've, you're doing a, a hard bit of rehab after a really 
hard workout or you're in the field for a month and you haven't touched the pole and uh, you're kind of hungry, you're a little bit underweight and said, no, 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 I was, you should have seen how much skin and bones I was when I couldn't eat for a month. I must have dropped 20 pounds. Like, no, I'm good. I get back from this real easy. And you just keep turning all those negatives right back around into positive somehow. And uh, you kind of take that trend with you. You break a pole, says, no, I've had stitches before. It's all good. I'll heal up in a few, few, few days. I got 20,000 jumps to bank on in the past, and I can, keep, I can keep motoring on. But, you know, you got good people to show you the way to do it. I didn't know how to do that before I had a coach in my face. And come on, Kendricks, he'd tell me to walk when I didn't think I could walk. Yeah, I can walk. You can walk fine. <laughs> come on. It hurt, but, yeah, I could walk. You, you take somebody real close to you and knows you real well to kind of help you through those things or else they might just say it's just too hard it's just too hard here's scott kendrick sam's father and coach recounting the effects of this accident it was a pivotal moment because you know we had to decide just how hard are we going to work at this because it's going to be twice as hard now with all the surgeries and um then when Sam went for his first day. Remember, he came to his first day of classes at Ole Miss with no teeth. And he tried to keep his mouth closed all day because he had broken his retainer with the four false teeth in it. And I took it to a dental um, prosthetic guy, or a lab guy, over in Tupelo and, and got it back for him, you know, that next day. But he came to Ole Miss the first day with no teeth as a freshman and uh, it was a sad day very humble start but he had to keep he couldn't smile had to keep his mouth closed because he didn't want to show I'm missing all my teeth to his classmates and then the next day we had had the thing you know stuck back in his mouth and then um, it wasn't until quite a, a while later that he actually had what we consider his permanent teeth now and people just assume that Sam has always had the best of the best of the best. And it's true, he hasn't. He hasn't. He has had a hard time the whole... He had his dad as a coach. You know, he had, uh, as they say, trouble along the way. It was not a golden road at all. And he got beat by everybody, including the girls on the team, when he first got started. For two years, the girls on the team beat his brains out. But in between surgeries and through recovery, Sam continued to pole vault into his senior year of high school. That year, Sam won his first outdoor national championship. My crowning achievement in high school was jumping 5 meters 19, 17 feet. And um, as I did that in my last home meet, personal best, in front of a hometown crowd of about 100. Boy, did it seem like a big day then. Um, my, my whole family was there, and the Ole Miss track and field staff and some of their most veteran athletes came out to watch me, and my goodness, did I feel like a superstar that day, and I had done my best in front of the people that I wanted to impress, but it kind of started me down the road of, oh, wow, I can really, I can really do something with this. A top 10 jump in the nation? We never heard of that. We'd, our, biggest, our biggest bubble was the state. How can we do in the state of Mississippi? And I had won the state championship just after that. But one of the coolest things about growing in a sport is you get to see each perspective change. You know, when I was in middle school, I had to be middle schoolers. When you were in 
high school, well, you get beat by a bunch of high schoolers before you learn how to beat a bunch of high schoolers. And when you go to college in the SEC and at Ole Miss, you're going to get beat a whole lot. And you have to come to terms with that. Is you're going to get beat a lot more than you're going to win. And you're listening to Sam Kendricks. And by the way, you heard from his dad before. And my goodness, his dad's right. He had a hard time all the way. A dad is a coach. He got beat by everyone. The girls beat him, as his dad put it, beat his brains out. But that jump of 17 feet in high school in front of a 100-person crowd changed his life. And the Ole Miss staff, the college staff, saw him. And the rest, well, you're going to hear the rest of the story, Sam Kendrick's story, a great local story from here in Oxford, Mississippi, here on Our American Stories. And we're back with Our American Stories and the story of Sam Kendricks. Sam is now a world champion athlete, but before we get there, well, he lost a lot. We pick up with his experience on the Ole Miss track team. Let's continue where we last left off. But when I was in college, I learned a whole lot about myself as a jumper, saying I can't, I can't hang with these guys playing their game. You know, in pole vaulting, there's, I'll give you a little bit of technical knowledge without going too deep, is that there are three things you can change. You can change how high you grip on a pole, you can change how fast you run, and you can change how stiff the pole is. Now, those all are very indicative of speed because leverage and physics and yada yada, just take my word for it. But I couldn't play the game because I couldn't grip high. Couldn't grip high at all. Every time I tried, I ended up in failure. And if you grip a higher pole, you're higher to the bar, closer to the bar that you're trying to jump. Does that make sense? And I couldn't do it. I I just didn't have the speed. I didn't have the athletic ability. I didn't have the background of trying to do that in high school. And so I had to kind of create my own model. And something cool about that is when you jump for a college team, you kind of have to perform to that team's standards. And Ole Miss gave me the great gift of not holding me to a national standard, saying, Sam, we don't need you to score right now. They gave me, they didn't, they didn't say, Sam, you have to perform to this level to have a spot on this team. And I said, okay, but I'm going to take that gift and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give it back as best as I can. And so we kind of created our own model in the event. And you can do that when you have somebody that's on your squad. It's always going to be there, your papa. And... We decided that we were going to be very excellent technicians in our event. We were going to make the most out of how high we were gripping. Um, We were going to say, we can sail high above our grip. Kind of defy physics a little bit and keep growing from there. And maybe increase grip a little bit. Back to my original point, is you get beat a whole lot? Yeah, I got beat a whole lot while I was trying to learn this. I, I scored one point in the SEC my freshman year in an indoor season. And then I actually took the silver medal at the SEC Championships. And outdoors. Um, that was my crowning achievement of that year. But then I quickly learned a little bit more about myself. I went to the national championship. Yeah, we're all about championships in track and field. We got them all the time. They're all a big deal. Um, I went to the national championship and I got my brain speed out. I was 10th. And you say, well, we got next year. 
And the next year, my sophomore year, I was uh, All-American indoors. And we learned a whole lot about what you can do if you really stick to your own plan. And we went to the Texas Relays. Texas Relays. Big track and field competition in Austin, Texas. Longhorn Stadium. And I jumped 19 feet. 19 feet. This is a height that I didn't know anything about at the time, but a height that hadn't been jumped by a collegiate guy in 14 years. They hadn't seen a collegiate guy jump that high. And I jumped it. And I came away from that saying, but, but I'm not that good of a jumper. <laughs> uh, well, if you don't know anything about Texas, it's actually really, really good conditions to jump high. Texas, a lot of people go to Texas to kind of boost the bar up there, to leave it up there hanging. But I didn't touch again 19 feet for two more years. I said, I got to go fill in the gaps that the conditions gave me at the Texas Relays to really become a better jumper. And but that really starts me down the path of where we are today of, okay, Sam, you've won everything there is to win in the NCAA. I go to the USA Championships after the year before, um, well, which I totally forgot about, is after I won my first NCAA Championship, I went to the USA Championship and got my brains beat out. So the next time I came back and I won in 2014, and I won the SEC Championship, the NCAA Championship, and the USA Championship. And it turned out the best decision for me when I came back was to leave Ole Miss and become a professional. And that was one of the hardest decisions I ever had to make because I loved being a part of the Ole Miss team. My girl was part of the Ole Miss team. All my friends were a part of the Ole Miss team. And I, I, I really kind of gave my identity to being an Ole Miss rebel. Sam had won everything there was to win on the collegiate level. If he wanted to make pole vaulting more than just something he did in college, he had a big decision to make. One that his father brought to him. When, when I talked to Sam and tried to convince him to become a professional after his junior year, you know, he really initially did not want to do it. He thought about it for four or five days. And then he came around and, and he believed in me enough to say, you're right, we need to, we need to be competing against the best in the world for two whole years before the Olympics. One year before the Olympics is not enough. And that decision that day probably had more to do with him winning a medal than anything else. He could have stayed. He could have had glory. He could have you know, do, done all those sorts of things. But I don't think he could have gotten a medal. As a coach, I know you not, you're not going to improve. If you're winning all the time, you've got to take your lumps. And we weren't taking enough lumps. And uh, if we could possibly work it out with the Army... Army was um, was so uh, they were so cooperative because you know they said, "Oh, Sam wants to be a professional. Uh, it's not going to affect his army career." Yeah, go ahead. Sure, that sounds like a great idea. Sam's going to go to the Olympics. Perfect. The army loves it, you know. And um, I have a, a green book that I started taking notes in when Sam became a professional. And there are so many coaches who would love to read my green book because it is a, it's a, it's a compilation of all of the things that we learned between the time Sam was a junior in college and Nike signed him and the Olympics. And I, I closed the book after the Olympics, but 
all the things that, that, that people shared with us around the world, some of the best coaches in the world shared with us. And we learned from them and, and we learned so, so many amazing things that allow you to do well at that top level. And if you don't know those things, you're just not going to beat these guys. When Sam started his professional journey, he needed a lot of help and support from his family. And one of those family members was Sam's grandfather. Um, my grandfather, Sam Kendricks, has been a fan of mine for so many years. He's passed away now, but he kept a flag in his front yard that was just as high as how high I jumped in my career. So by the time he died, it was 19 feet, four and a half inches, which is pretty cool to see. Um, they told him every day he couldn't have a flagpole that high, but he said, screw him in his front yard, in his neighborhood. But, you know, that's why I loved him so much. And he gave us the gift of a little bit of travel money that we could travel on. And because as a new, newly minted professional track and field athlete, you don't really get much help. You, uh, I mean, winning NCAA and USA championships means very little because, once again, you have to jump into a new world, a new perspective, and say, okay, this is the final step you have to take. You have to be a professional now. You have to jump against the best in the world all the time. And what happens is you go, you get your brains beat out. But not as bad this time. I actually made a little money along the way. I made enough money to cover expenses and to get, climb my way up those rankings. And to the point where I was the best USA-ranked athlete, and then I was actually top 20, top 20 in the world as a pole vaulter. And that was a cool day to end the year and saying I was 16th on the list, I think, at the end of 2015. By the end of 2015, I went to the World Championships in Beijing, and I got my brains beat out, and I was ninth. <laughs> and, you know, I, I told myself after that that, my goodness, if, if history serves, I'm in a good spot right now. And Sam was in a good spot, and he took his dad's advice. And in the end, he's so right. You can't learn anything when you're winning all the time. And so he left Ole Miss, left his girlfriend and his friends behind at the end of his junior year, embarking on a true professional arc and a learning curve that will prepare him for Olympic competition. When we come back, the final segment of this remarkable story, Sam Kendrick's story, here on Our American Story. continue with our American stories and our final segment of Olympic medalist and pole vaulting world champion Sam Kendricks and his story we pick up with faith. In 2016, Sam was at the Olympics where his father was able to be there with him. And then when it came my turn to have my last words with Sam before he walked out, I always try for a big championship, I try to have something worthwhile to say. Because, you know, there's so much in an athlete's head as they're going out into a gigantic competition. 
And so um, I said, you know why they started the Olympics back up in 1896? A French baron started them back with his own money. And the reason they started them back up was for sportsmanship. And so that countries t- could get together and and celebrate a competition where nobody got killed. No war. It's not. It's a friendly competition between nations that people can celebrate and respect. And so the, the original motto of the Olympics is, it's not the winning, but the taking part. And so I said, you know, we have worked so hard for you to be at the Olympics. And most everybody here tonight will leave disappointed. Don't be disappointed because you are in the Olympics. No matter what else, when you walk out to the side, you are in the Olympics and no one can ever take that honor away. You're an Olympian. And so go out there and have a great time and things usually turn out well if you have a great time. You know, standing on the podium in Rio was cool because it rained and it was fun and not many people stuck around. And I see Leanne trying to give me a kiss from the stands and I said, I can't get to you, but I'll see you as soon as I get home. And uh, doing all the managing victory with the eyes of America watching you, having a little video of myself go viral saying that I would stay in attention for the national anthem which is something I didn't think was very special at all, but some, a lot of people messaged me and said, that's, that's pretty special, Sam. And I said, well, it's kind of one of those things you just do, right? But when you really stand on top of the podium and there's gold hanging around your neck and you say, well, all of, this, all of these things, all these sacrifices you made in the past, all these people you brought with you, all those things you said no to, all those things you said yes to make a lot of sense. And you're really blessed to be there. I mean, there's 55,000 people screaming your name at the end of the competition. And when it's raining, when you're on the podium and this sparse, star-spangled banner is playing, it's hard to just, it's really hard to describe. 2017 was an eventful year for Sam. Not only did he marry his wife, Leanne, he went undefeated in the pole vaulting season and then went on to break the six-meter barrier, an amazing accomplishment in pole vaulting. In professional athletics, we have things like clubs. We like to really, it's a kind of a barrier of sorts. Everybody knows about when Roger Bannister broke the four-minute mile. It was astounding. And once he did it, it changed people's thinking of the event, and then it led other men to be able to do it, by which beforehand no one thought it was capable. Anybody was physically capable of doing that. They thought it was the limit of human effort to be able to run a mile in under four minutes. Great men had tried, and they were unable to do it before Roger Bannister, a doctor who only trained on his lunch break. But in the pole vault, my event, the barrier is six meters. It's very even. We love our even numbers in track and field. Four minutes, six meters. Um, I can count on three fingers how many times a guy jumped six meters but did not win a competition. He had to jump higher than six meters. That's absolutely astounding. But there's less than 20 men in history that have ever jumped six meters, and I was able to jump that at the Sacramento USA Outdoor Championships. If you can jump six meters, it's the point of a career. It says, you, hey, you've achieved. It doesn't matter how you did it. It doesn't matter how you did it. Nobody cares if you did it backwards. As long as you did it, you get credit for being one of the best in history. And because I did it a different way than was conventional, jumping on a pole that no one had ever done, jumped that height before on, um, gave me 
a little bit of extra credibility in my community as athletics and pole vaulters. I did jump six meters on a 16-foot pole. It, it, that math was kind of a barrier in people's heads. They said, we, you have to grip this high in order to jump this high because otherwise it's physically impossible. You know, the four-minute mile, you have to... It can't be done until somebody did it, right? So I was kind of the first guy to do that. Pole vaulting has long been the sport for the daring. What does it take to be a pole vaulter? There's this little switch you have to switch off in your brain to be a great pole vaulter to say, okay, my my mere mortal brain tells me this is dangerous. I shouldn't commit fully to trusting my life to this piece of fiberglass and carbon fiber in my hands. I'm actually going to point my heels to the sky, put my head to the ground, and ride this thing into the atmosphere. You got to be able to do that or else you're not going to cut it. And that's kind of the, not necessarily the competition between me and the other competitors, but me and myself and me and physics to say, hey, I can overcome this barrier based on what I know and what I can do and what I've trained to do and let the chips fall where they may. I think I can beat you. I'm going to leave the, I'm going to leave the bar up there high. It's your turn to jump in next after me. And that's, that's where my competition, not so much head to head, but me against the bar um, every time and the me against you part that can come when the medals get decided because um, that's, that's the opportunity to be friends in the event because I'm not, I'm not competing against you so so much. The guy next to me, I'm competing against that bar. And if you can't manage that bar, if you can't manage to get over it like I did, I deserve to win. How has Sam dealt with some of the pressure and doubts we all inevitably face? And to deal with the stress is to enjoy it. I I thoroughly enjoy competing ever since I was a kid. You know, I was, but to be in the in the game, to be among men playing this playing this grand game called track and field grown-ass dudes out there trying to jump over a pole come on it's got to be a little bit fun or else we're just doing something really nuts <laughs> and this is an odd concept for most people but can you actually fail over and over and over and they make you just fail over and get your brains beat out over and over and just keep going can you actually just do that can you just you don't have to be a hero not at all you don't have to be a hero at all to be a great tra- championship athlete you just have to be able to stand up when everybody else is kind of falling down around you. And I learned that real quick. As in a championship situation, when really the money's on the table, can you actually just get back up on your feet and keep going? Um, nobody's expecting heroics out of you. It's not necessarily heroic for me to jump 5 meters 90 anymore. It's not heroic to put the ruck on my back and keep going 12 more miles. But if you can do that, if you can say, I failed so many times before, but it made me good. It made me real good. It made me so good that to the fact that sometimes you had to put that confidence away because you know you're good. You know you've got it in the bag when that bar goes up and that last jumper had his best height and he's winded at the back of the runway and said, he's no way in hell he's going to jump this. I got this in the bag. You come off that pit swing and you can't beat that. You can't beat that. But that's not the guy you can be all the time. You got to hold that back. You got to be the guy that gets knocked down. And you hear this all the time in the media. You got to be on knocked down, get knocked down, but get back, get back up again. But can you get knocked down a thousand times? They got this cool analogy in Navy SEAL training of the only way you can really get kicked out is if you go ring the bell. You go ring the bell. You have to acknowledge that you failed and you can't take any more. Um, and every athlete is going to have that crucible. I'm not by any means saying that I could be a Navy SEAL. Um, that I think that path's covered up for me. 
there's a lot of aspects of that bell is hanging up there. You had the opportunity to just stay home and don't go to the championship. Don't let that stress be on yourself. You can let it all be done. You don't have to get on that plane. You don't have to get back under that boat. You don't have to get back in the sand or in the cold water. But if you do, you might make it. And that's kind of the cool thing about athletics. It's as much, you get as much out of it as what you put into it. After so many losses early on in his career, Sam now has accrued many victories. And in 2019, he won the world championships again and broke the American record, jumping 6.06 meters. It, it somehow gets easier. <laughs> and it's, it's hard to say. It's like, oh yeah, it should be the hardest when you're at the top. No, it's actually the easiest. Can you believe that? And it's actually the easiest when you get to jump in London and everybody wants to help you with your medical and get you in cold baths and drive you to the meet and take care, help you take care of your poles. I, didn't need, I don't need all this help now. I needed it two years ago. I needed all this help two years ago. Uh, you don't need it now. But uh, I got all the help I want now, which is great. Can't do it alone. I'm Faith Buchanan, and this is Our American Stories. And great job on that, Faith. And what a voice and what a lesson to be learned by someone that young to anybody who's ever faced any adversity, anyone trying to do something tough. What humility and yet what confidence at the same time. And my goodness, you know, all these things you said no to and yes to. Well, it was hard to describe how we felt getting that gold medal, standing on that stand in Rio. But my goodness, he said no to a lot, including graduating with all of his friends at Ole Miss. That had to be really hard. But in the end, he met and married the girl he loved, right? Uh, He didn't lose her. He didn't lose his friends. He just had to step out into something unknown and lose a lot more. And that's tough. And he said it best. It's me and myself, not me against my competitor. It's me and physics. And it's me against the bar. And again, if you live your life that way, set a bar and go after the bar. Forget the other people and forget what they think of you. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. So much wisdom here from this young man. Again, a local hero here in Oxford, Mississippi. And you've got them all over this great country, men and women, setting a high bar and going for it. And sometimes hitting it, sometimes not. But it's the process of going for the bar that makes you who you are anyway. Sam Kendrick's story, here on Our American Stories. 